Right now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 12. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible or you just prefer to read along exactly as I'm reading, then uh, grab one of the Pew Bibles, and I'm on page, uh, it'll start on page 1008, and then we'll go into 1009. Uh, We tend to do a lot of scripture. I don't know if you recognize today, you've already heard two large chunks of, well, three large chunks of text, two that uh, Jack shared, one that I shared, and then, of course, text within the the songs themselves that we heard or sang. We believe that Scripture is the most powerful and accurate communicator of what God wants from us. And so we try to highlight Scripture. Today we're going to highlight it even more. We're actually going to read all of chapter 12. How many of you know an over-explainer? Eric Dush, you are the over-explainer. Put your hand down. One of the things that we can sometimes do is we over-explain something. We kind of steal the magic of it. We steal the beauty of it. I, I'm, I'm torn to even comment on this text of Hebrews 12 because it's so lovely in its own right. And so I need you all to do me a favor. And I need you at some point today, when you are at home and by yourself or maybe with a spouse or with your kids or with whomever, sit and read in one sitting all of Hebrews 12. Just read it and let it sit in your soul for a minute. And let the power of it in its fullness just grab you um, because I think you'll find it beautiful. I'm going to break it up because I'm a preacher and that's what we do. Just can't, just can't fight nature sometimes. And uh, so here you have uh, kind of what I would call four moves within the text. We're encouraged to look at Jesus. We're told to look at God. We're encouraged to look at ourselves. And then we're encouraged to look toward the future. Um, Jack kind of already stepped all over the first little bit there. Thanks, Jack. Um, but I'm really drawn to this text uh, powerfully this week because Tuesday my grandfather, um, uh, Kellicutt, Grandpa Kellicutt, Charles Kellicutt, had a stroke. And he is now in hospice and will pass today or tomorrow. Uh, my grandma um, passed a year uh, in some change uh, prior to this, this time. And I, I'm th- really struck by the opening passage here talking about this cloud of witnesses. Um, you've got to humor me for a moment because I just have to tell you a story about my grandpa. Is that okay? So, uh, grandpa was a quiet man, strong, silent type. Never, in fact, I was thinking back and I was trying to remember if he had ever shared with me an opinion about anything. And I couldn't think of one. I'm, I'm sure he did at some point, but, but he was just, he was just, he was quiet, always quiet. Um, but he was a strong church. I used to go and I would stay with them for weeks at a time, usually over the week of VBS or something like that. Grandma and grandpa were very involved in church. Um, but I have been told this story by three different individuals, I, not asked for. They just sort of say, can I tell you a story about your grandpa? And this is, this is the story. There was a church fight. All right, these things happen. What? What's that? I don't know. I'm just saying that. The elders had kind of a direction they wanted to go, and uh, there was a faction within the church that didn't like it, and so there was a meeting that was had, and it was a very contentious meeting. I know that none of you have ever experienced anything like this. <laughs> and I just, I sort of imagine so these people going back and forth, and just this tempers kind of, you know how it is, they build, they flare, they get bigger, everyone has strong opinions about the color of the carpet or whatever it is. And my grandpa stood up. And the room got quiet because Chuck never talks. 
He doesn't get involved in any of those things. But everyone stopped and they listened to what my grandpa had to say. And my grandpa had this to say. He said, I thought we were supposed to be an elder-led church. And he sat down and ended the argument there. My grandfather was a man of, is a man of great faith. Isn't it interesting, and Jesus talks about this, um, we talk about Christians in the past tense, but Jesus says God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the God of the living. And so I want to encourage you for a moment as my grandfather's about to pass into that cloud of witnesses to ask you who is cheering for you. Paul shared powerfully the message with us last week from Hebrews chapter 11 about this great cloud of witnesses, these men and women who held on to their faith despite trying times. Uh, Abraham and Moses and and Noah and Rahab and and Deborah and, and Ruth and Gideon. And of course, we could look into the New Testament. You look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Peter, and James. Paul, the great apostle, names that we have like, like Onesimus and Philemon and Titus and Timothy, names that we don't know, but people who attended the church that we have letters to, the, the, ch- the church right here who have, who have gone before us, and they are included in this cloud of witnesses, and there has been some Christian at some point in your life who has poured into you, and I don't know if it was a youth leader or a preacher or an elder or a parent or a grandparent who has gone on, but they are cheering for you. To finish strong. Who is cheering for you? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Who is cheering you on. There are so many things that hold on to us and and cling to us. And uh, I'm not a a runner, but I'm told that running marathons is a rather difficult thing. Carl nods in agreement. And it's got to be very difficult to run. In fact, I I know that they continue to improve the weight of t-shirts and shoes Because when you're running a long race, every gram counts. We are running a far more important race, one that has the weight of eternity on it. And everything that you hold on to, everything you are carrying with you, all of that weight slows you. All of that weight slows you. And maybe it's not weight that you even put on yourself. Maybe it's weight that someone else has laid on you. But it slows you. And if we look to Jesus, Jesus let it all go. Upon the cross, he was naked. We read, uh, Paul read last week from chapter 11, that 
that as we look at that great cloud of witnesses and we ask the question, you know, how did they run their race? How did they fight? And chapter 11, it says that they were tortured and they refused to be released. Just take that in for a second and think about that. Somebody is torturing you and they say, all you have to do is say, Jesus isn't Lord and you're free. They refused to be released so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment, stoned, cut in two, killed with a sword, given sheepskin and goat skin to wear so that they could be let loose within the arena and torn apart by wild animals, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. What did they hold on to? I would like you to say over my grave, the world was not worthy of him. And if you go first, I'd like to say it over yours. So what must we let go of to run that race? With such ferocity. Jesus It says in our text here, kata phroneas, that is, he despised. And this word means to think little of, to disregard, to count so small as a thing that's not worthy in light of the larger thing. So I immediately equated this to mosquitoes because we live in Michigan. It doesn't stop us. We hate them. We despise them. We can all agree. We disagree about many things. We all despise mosquitoes. And uh, it doesn't stop us from, from picnics and potlucks and camping and all these things because we look upon them as, and maybe that's, a, maybe that's a bad, maybe this week somebody poured garbage into your life and said things that you looked at them and you thought, well, why, why did you even say that? Why would you bring that? Why would you say? Maybe they looked at you and they said ridiculous things like it's, it's not even Thanksgiving yet. Why do you have Christmas lights up? And you looked at them and you said, I'm going to think very little of that statement, putting these lights up. Silly things. But I hope that the silliness of those two examples highlights how Jesus looked at the cross. I don't know about you, but I think that you should think much of a cross. If anyone says, if you uh, say Jesus is Lord one more time, we're going to crucify you, you should take that threat very seriously. That just seems like a no-brainer to me. Something that is going to end your life. It, it, the life is the most precious. What don't we do to preserve our lives, right? Of course, we do everything to preserve our lives. But this says that Jesus, knowing that there was something far greater beyond, said that even death, even death, naked, beaten, bleeding, and suffocating on a cross, that in and of itself is so little a thing as to be despised for how great the kingdom of God is. Is that our faith? What a powerful thing to look upon Jesus. And all the trials and tribulations and things that you have brought in this morning, whether I'm talking about habits and sins and addictions and things that you continue to participate in that will withhold your entrance into the kingdom of God because you enjoy the pleasure more than you enjoy the holiness. Or whether I'm talking about shame or guilt or whether I'm talking about you thinking of giving up on your faith because things seem so big and so threatening and so awful that you wonder how can there even be a God? Look at Jesus. 
look at Jesus. Why do bad things happen? Why is it so hard? We're told then to look at God in verses 4 through 11. He says in verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? Here he quotes from the Old Testament, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and every daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're not even a real child. You're illegitimate, and illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. My grandfather um, yelled at me twice, and I remember both of those times. And I remember both of those times I was absolutely in the wrong. Um, And that discipline stung, and it stung more uh, because I had shamed myself in his sight. Have you shamed God? The discipline here, the chastisement, is not just the idea of I've done something wrong, therefore God punishes me. The idea here is that we are being trained for righteousness, and training for anything is tough work. It requires attention, it requires discipline, it requires time, it requires correction, and all of those things are things that God is pouring into you when times of trial come. I... I worry that we have forgotten that we follow a crucified Lord. In Isaiah 53, the most clear picture we have of what the Messiah would do when he was here says that Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind. He would be a man of suffering and acquainted with sorrow. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I worry that there is a lack of strength in Christianity today. I have been in the church for, cognitively, uh, 30-ish years. And over those years as a child and teenager and young adult and youth minister and associate minister and preacher, I have watched so many people fall left and right. Sometimes because times were so hard, they lost their faith. Sometimes because pleasure was so pleasurable, they lost their faith. Sometimes because they told me, well, God really wants me to do it. And I said, absolutely, he does not. The scriptures say no. And we disciplined and corrected them by saying, you cannot say you're a Christian anymore. I worry that we have lost 
the kind of faith that gave people courage to stare down lions. And that we have been so co-opted by our society that we allow them to dictate what is right and what is wrong. And then we're completely blind to the fact that we are in the wrong and the lions get us. For the devil, your adversary, is a roaring lion and he is looking to eat you alive. Isn't it interesting? If you take, if you, how many of you got the Bible I've got? If you take this Bible anyway, maybe some of yours is different, and you just turn it one page over to James, the first words out of James' mouth are so powerfully appropriate to this moment. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Where are the Christians that are like that? I mean, you know people who go through hard times and you commiserate with them and you see them and and they say, man, times are hard and I just, I don't know how I'm gonna get through it and mopey and sad and weak. And it says here, what should Christians do? We should look upon the time of trial and we should rejoice in it because Jesus went through so much more and we know that all of that is producing something. He says in verse 3, For know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and you need steadfastness. You must have steadfastness, or you will not make it into the kingdom. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect. Why do times of trial come? I don't know. Why are you suffering what you're suffering? Why are you tempted by what you're tempted? I don't know. Job never got a straight answer out of God. But he passed the test. And we know that for whatever reason, whatever is happening, whatever is going down in your life right now, it can either be met with sorrow, sadness, weakness, or it can be met with strength and faith and courage, knowing that that time of trial is nothing in light of the glory that's to come. So we're told to look at ourselves. Verse 12. Therefore lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. And make a straight path for your feet. So that what is lame may may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And strive for peace with everyone for holiness. Without which... No one will see the Lord. See to it, see to it that none of you fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness grows up and causes trouble in the church. And by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. If you're unfamiliar with that illustrative story, it comes from the early chapters of Genesis, um, mid-chapters of Genesis, where Jacob and Esau, these two brothers who are inheriting millions, it's a very wealthy family, 
the older is to inherit, and the younger got a smaller piece, if anything. And some of you know the story really well, but for those of you who don't, let's just ponder it for a moment and the power of it. Esau is off hunting, and he's hungry. He comes home. You ever been so hungry that your stomach feels like it's caving in on itself? I know you feel that way now and hope I wrap up. I got another 20 minutes in me. I'm just kidding. He's so hungry. He's just starving. And he's a man who lives by his guts. You know people like that? I want it, I get it. I desire it, I grab it. He lives by his gut, his emotion. And he comes home and he smells. Jacob has freshly delivered pizza. I mean, not like Little Caesar's $5 thing, but like, or Bally's, like the, that Alfredo cheese thing that they do that's like $35, but it's so good. And Esau smells it and he says, I'm hungry, I want it, give it to me. And Jacob who is a trickster. In fact, that's actually what his name means. I don't know what your parents named you, but they didn't name you trickster. So give them a call today. Tell them thank you. And and Jacob says, if you sell me your birthright, I'll give you the pizza. And I bet you, I bet you that Esau did it in a heartbeat. Just boom. And I bet you that first bite was like, oh man, that was worth it. And I bet two bites. I bet that first, I bet that whole pizza, he just downed it. And he was sat back, full belly, and said, man, that was good. That was so worth it. But in a few hours when he was hungry again, he realized, you know what? That was a bad deal. Sin is a bad deal, folks. Giving up on your faith is a bad deal. It seems so good right now. It seems like the right move right now. Maybe you're so disheartened, it feels like the only option right now But look at Esau. His story is tragic. It's tragic. He goes to his father to receive the blessing. He's lost his birthright. And Jacob, trickster, stole the blessing too. And he comes to his father and he says, Father, what's left? And his father says, Nothing. Jacob took both of them. You stupidly gave it away. And then he tricked you for the blessing. He says, What's left for me, father? And his father says, I have nothing left to give you. And you can see him, can't you? All red-haired and weeping in his father's lap, begging him, Something for me, nothing for you. The day of judgment is coming. The day of your death is coming. Do not wait until then to get yourself right with God. There is no more time. And I don't know where you are in this race. Maybe you've never started, started it. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, I'm not really a Christian. I, I've never thought about it. I've never tried it. I've never stepped on to the track. And it's time. And maybe you're a Christian that stopped running or running in the wrong direction. Maybe you've turned full tilt the other way. I plead with you to look at Esau and learn that lesson and then fix your eyes on Jesus. The author of hope. Because believe me, that sin will turn to ash in your mouth. And you'll desire it again in a little bit. And it will turn to ash in your mouth again and you will never meet the end of your desire for that thing. But in Jesus, all desire is met to the full. 
And if you think I can't see it through, I can't, I can't confess it in church, I can't gather with you, I'm done with this faith thing, I can't, I can't handle anymore. Let me tell you, that time of trial, whatever it is that you are struggling with or suffering from, that thing itself, that's not going away just because you give up. Your trial is still in front of you. Your troubles will still come. The question is, who's cheering for you? And running with you to help you face the lions. So look to yourself today. Don't leave this place without looking to yourself. And then we come to this last turn, this look at the future. And here, and here there is, um, and here there need, we do a little, little bit of a, I forgot my clicker. Would you click for me? This is a little illustration that's kind of helpful He's going to move into this, uh, to this, this imagery of two mountains. And you might be familiar with this. You have Mount Sinai in which they received the law and the Moses. And it was full of smoke and fire and all kinds of trouble. And then there is Mount Zion, which is a, a, a metaphorical way of talking about Jerusalem. But frequently kind of the eschatological. There's your fancy word for the day. Like the end of the world Jerusalem where all things have been perfected, new heavens, new earth. And so with that in mind, you kind of have these two things set up. And I, I thought this was kind of a helpful little infograph, and so I got, I got it for us. Um, but follow along in verse 18 as we read about these two mountains. So looking at uh, Esau, this is all kind of flowing together. And then we come, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest. If you remember the story out of Sinai, the, the whole mountain was shrouded in a black cloud and thunder and lightning and all these terrifying things. And the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches this Mount Sinai, this holy mountain, it shall be stoned. That's how holy God is. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight Then Moses said, I tremble with fear. But we, we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, with innumerable angels and feastal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It sort of lays that out here, these descriptions. You see these two set up against each other. The, the old law and Moses and this new vision that we have been given. You can go ahead and go to the next slide. And so what do we see in that, this picture? We see this imagery of, of power and grace, of angels feasting. Gathered together for the feast. How would you like to eat with angels? I wonder what that would be like. I bet, or bellies, is like little Caesars compared to whatever it is that angels are eating. But I mean, what a beautiful portrait. Why, why would we lay aside the sins that we hold tight and dear because we love them? Why would we run a race with endurance, which is by definition difficult? Why would we endure hardship? Why would we, like Esau, Esau, unlike Esau, reject pleasure in the moment for the 
for the, the hope of future glory. Why would we do all of these things? Because we have not come to Sinai. We have come to Zion. Because you were made to be righteous. You were made to eat with angels. You were made for glory and life and resurrection. And those things have a cost. They have a cost. Are you prepared to pay that cost? Do you have the strength, power, character to cling to Jesus and to say that no matter what comes, I will follow the Lamb wherever He will go? So that takes faith. It takes a church. It takes courage. And so we are told, we're warned here in verse 25, do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. And at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, we get to this kind of moment of conclusion. Therefore, let us be grateful for a kingdom, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Your God is a consuming fire who will see you through every trial and tribulation who will see you through death itself on the other side awaiting glory if we hold fast and we devote ourselves to this kind of worship and commitment, I exhort you in the name of the living God to take careful attention to this chapter of Scripture. And as you read it, asking the question, who is cheering you on? Asking the question, Who will you see at the end of the race? Asking the question, will God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. We'll see you through every trial and every tribulation. We'll make every sin taste like dirt. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, our future our inheritance if we hold fast to the end. Let's stand and sing in reverence and awe and worship our God.